You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good morning. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. Unfortunately, Hurricane Ian and its horrific impact on Southwest Florida is still fresh on our minds. Our hearts go out to all the victims dealing with the losses of their homes, possessions, and in many cases, their loved ones. Businesses, too, are often impacted by natural disasters like this. In this week's episode, we'll be taking a look at accounting and financial reporting implications of disasters, natural and otherwise, with Lou Port, an accounting advisory senior director in our Tampa, Florida office. Adam, Lou, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Of course. So, Adam, obviously, it's a very tough time for everyone dealing with Hurricane Ian. Yep. And unfortunately, it feels like the events like these are becoming the norm rather than the exception. Businesses will feel these impacts as well. What are some of those issues from a business and financial reporting standpoint that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, so I mean, just kind of like what you mentioned in the opening, right? These these disasters, the most recent one in Florida, you know, quite devastating for uh, lots of individuals, uh, families, as well as business entities. And anytime there's a disaster that strikes, there can be tons of different implications that come into play just from an operational standpoint, but also as well as from just an accounting and reporting standpoint. Um, you know, oftentimes when we think about natural disasters, obviously major ones like hurricanes tend to come to mind, but it, it can also be other things where we see um, other types of disasters that strike that cause the same type of issues. So, you know, flooding in the plains, tornadoes in the plains, you got wildfires out west, um, even terrorist attacks from time to time can cause disruption and, um, you know, devastation to businesses. So there's a lot to think about, you know, not just, you know, the obviously the destruction of property and disruption of the, you know, the operations itself, but, um, you know, people's principal operations can be impacted from, you know, this customer side to the supplier side, as far as disruptions and being able to get resources that you need to run your business. So the effects can be both direct and indirect. You know, a number of accounting issues do come to mind when we think about this. I think most likely people jump to the first thing, which is just impairments of their assets and such, just when you've got this level of devastation and, and disruption to the business. But other things that also are impacted or bringing into considerations is just around insurance itself. So clearly, you know, insurance is a big component of any time a disaster strikes. So just how do you deal with insurance recoveries and claims? Um, liquidity can be an issue, so that often raises questions around going concern. And then to a lesser extent, some of the other you know considerations that might come into play here could be things around like exit and disposal activities of a business or even some industry specific considerations. So those that you know have to deal with asset retirement obligations or other environmental like remediation type obligations, those could also be impacted. Okay. I, I want to touch a little bit more on impairments, which I know we've talked about before on previous podcasts. Yep. I believe that was in season one. But with most natural disasters, tangible property losses immediately come to mind. What are some of the impact considerations that we need to evaluate in these cases? Yeah, so like I mentioned, you know, when a disaster strikes, there's, I think, the most obvious impact is like a direct destruction of, you know, buildings, equipment, things of that nature that 
are have to be replaced or no longer functional thing, you know, and, and, and somehow you're going to have to work through um, rebuilding that aspect of the business. But then there's also kind of those ancillary or indirect impacts that I mentioned at, at the opening. So things that could potentially impact the cash flows of the business. So, you know, if, if a disaster strikes in a region where you have a lot of customers, maybe there'll be a decline in sales or maybe a supplier, key supplier of yours is impacted. So you're not going to be able to get the inventory you need to sell to your customers on a timely basis, which could impact your cash flow. So there's a number of things that can come into play um, that can, you know, is related to impairments. And I think a lot of times people jump to those tangible assets, right? Buildings, vehicles, equipment, because you can see that destruction and it's clear like we've got an issue with this. But, you know, the impact to the cash flows can also extend beyond just your fixed assets as well. So you got to be also be thinking about, you know, intangible assets you have on your books, goodwill, and even some of your working capital type balances. So your inventory balances, your even your receivables, if you know, you've got customers that are impacted and maybe they won't be able to pay their receivables. Okay, helpful. So let's let's double click on the impairment elements. So what exactly do companies need to do for these impairments? Yeah, so the first thing is obviously getting your hands around everything that was impacted by the disaster. So, you know, thinking about locations, facilities, you know, buildings, equipment, um, just operations and where that where the extent of it kind of lies from the disaster itself. You know, a lot of times what'll end up leading us to have to have this um, kind of impairment discussion or consideration is what we call like a triggering event. Um, and obviously a large disaster kind of qualifies as an event that would trigger the need for impairment. And that that's generally because in the guidance itself, they'll speak to, you know, examples or factors of triggering events. And some of the more common ones are like a change in the use of an asset. So if a building's destroyed, you're no longer using the building anymore. So that's changed the use or the condition of the asset or the ability to use an asset or even just more like broader impacts. So you could have more macroeconomic impacts. So like maybe you're, you didn't have a direct impact from the result of the, the disaster itself. But like I said, a key supplier was, and that more macro effect is going to impact your business as well. So those things lead to having to think about impairment. Um, so once you kind of know which of your assets are going to be affected, um, then the next thing to think about is just how GAP wants you to work through the impairment model. So there's a specific ordering to impairment that you have to walk through, particularly when you've got different asset classes that could be impacted. So the general order that it works in is first, you know, it's any type of working capital type, you know, assets that are impacted. So first you'd adjust like your inventory if you need to put reserves on that or write stuff off. Um, receivables, for example, you know, those are things also where you may have reserves. Um, but then as you're thinking about your longer term assets or your indefinite lived assets, first you start with those intangible indefinite lives, you apply impairment there, make any adjustments you need. Then you move on to your fixed assets. So those, you know, like I said, tangible assets, but it could also be intangible um, assets that have a finite life. And then the last in the order is goodwill. And so as you go through each step, any impairment charges you take, you know, you obviously would adjust the carrying value of the different assets as you apply the next test. Okay, that's super helpful. I'm sure there's some nuances though that we need to consider when performing these impairment tests amongst these asset groups. Anything specifically that you wanna to touch on? Yeah, so there there are differences, um, and you know I can I can hit on the highlights, you know, if you want. But you know, 
I would probably recommend that if you know you, you haven't gone through some of these impairment tests in a while, definitely take a look at some of our past episodes. We've talked about more of the specific considerations in each of the different frameworks um, in those episodes and, and probably get a bit more information there as well. Okay, so let's run through some of those differences then if we can, taking each in that order of the impairment test that you mentioned just a few minutes ago. So starting with assessing the impacts to any working capital, moving into indefinite lived intangibles, uh, finite lived assets, and then potentially goodwill. Yeah, so, you know, you would just use the applicable gap for any like working capital accounts. So, you know, inventory, you're kind of looking at, you know, your, your low of cost of market, your net realizable value, um, you know, accounts receivable, generally under a CECL model for most entities or will be. So just applying that kind of loss model there to figure out if any reserves are needed. So once you've adjusted any of those working capital accounts, then you go the first step, like you mentioned, indefinite lived, which is primarily focused on a fair value look. So you're essentially just looking at the fair value of your indefinite lived intangible asset compared to what its carrying value is. If there's a difference, if the fair value is lower, you're going to write it down and take the impairment loss. Um, typically that is required to be done on an annual basis, but it also has this like trigger based consideration. So again, kind of back to what I mentioned about triggers here, you know, you have a disaster, this is going to be a, a time where you're going to have to kind of do an additional impairment test at that point to figure out, okay, what impairment charge, if any, do I need to take? Uh, once you've done that, then the next step is kind of your finite lived assets. So your, you know, yeah, your fixed assets, your uh, intangible assets that you amortize themselves. The model here is a little bit different. It tends to focus on recoverability of those assets or, or what's known as an asset group, which is the level at which you test that impairment. Um, and the test here is actually a two parts test. So your part one, you're basically looking at recoverability of the asset group. So it's undiscounted cash flows of that asset group. If it exceeds the carrying value, you're good. You don't have to actually you know, go on to step two, but if it doesn't, then you go to step two, which is basically just measuring then the fair value of that asset group and then writing, allocating that impairment charge out to the asset group. Um, and then after that, you got Goodwill, which is the last one. Everyone's familiar. You know, you have to do an annual impairment test. It's kind of the same drill as the indefinite live, except Goodwill is generally done at the reporting unit level. Um, and so it's just looking at the fair value of your reporting unit compared to the carrying value of that reporting unit and um, any difference there um, you would take as an impairment loss. Um, I would caveat, though, you know, there are some different exceptions for Goodwill accounting for private companies. So could be a little bit different, um, some nuances there and how do you apply the impairment framework. So again, you know, just if you check out that impairment podcast, we, we go through some more of those specifics in that. And then, you know, I guess the last thing I would just mention is I think a lot of times people do tend to like forget about the intangible assets and the goodwill when they're thinking about impairment because they're not physical. And so it, it's just a, another reminder again that like, you have to think about things that could impact your cash flows that could potentially warrant the need to test for impairment because maybe what you originally had as your cash flows are not going to surmise and now you've got to reevaluate to see okay or can we actually like carry this asset at this value that we have it at so this impairment framework that we've just discussed what happens when the asset though is just destroyed it's no longer exists you know if there's no functionality to it right like you probably wouldn't apply an impairment test to it because there'd be 
no cash flows for it because it's no longer well, operating, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what generally happens is just viewed as a write-off, which is essentially like viewed as like a disposal of that asset. So you would apply like disposal accounting. Okay. Super helpful, Adam. Thanks so much. Lou, turning over to you. So we've looked at overall asset impairments, but if operating assets are damaged or destroyed, most entities will start dealing with insurers to figure out repairs and replacements of these assets as needed. Um, what are some of the common types of insurance matters that come to mind when you face these natural disasters? Yeah, sure. Insurers will be a large factor for any disaster. And depending on the severity, how bad uh, the damage is, you're going to be dealing with them for a long time. Uh, the most common types of claims that are made are the obvious property insurance claims, because like Adam just said, it's tangible when you think about it. Uh, but in many cases as well, companies are going to have policies to help cover uh, business interruption. And, you know, business interruption, Lou, that's a huge portion of, a, of, of what the businesses are going to be fighting during these natural disasters. Why do companies have these policies to begin with? And what are some of the claims that are typically covered for uh, business interruption insurance? Yeah, uh, business interruption coverage, it's a key part of risk management programs and covers lost profits and other costs that arrive, arise when uh, companies have to shutter its business or shut down parts of uh, operations due to a significant event like a hurricane or earthquake. So on top of the other immediate issues that go along with that, like repairs, restarting operations, there's a lot of reporting that companies need to do to reasonably capture uh, what those lost profits are. So that job's made easier if the company has solid, supportable uh, business forecast data, because um, the insurance carriers will review that data with a fine tooth comb just to make sure it's reasonable mm -hmm. in their mind or in their view for reimbursement. So at the same time, there's going to be costs related to the event that would not have occurred otherwise. Those incremental costs will need to be carefully tracked as well uh, to get reimbursement from the insurers. Okay. So it sounds like there has to be a lot of collaboration between the finance and accounting departments to ensure that the teams are on the same, same page. That's exactly right. And from a record-keeping standpoint, uh, it's a good idea for accounting departments to set up reporting to track those costs specifically. Um, they can be form in the form of new GL accounts. They can be uh, specific reporting depending on uh, how uh, sophisticated their systems are or non-sophisticated as the case may be. Um, the teams out in the field, the operations teams really need to uh, be up to speed on how those items need to be captured in the ledgers because they're the ones who are incurring all those costs. Um, and for private companies, especially private equity-backed companies, uh, record-keeping is so crucial in this area because uh, so much reporting is based on adjusted EBITDA and nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, um, uh, EBITDA is not going to include non-recurring events like these. Okay, super helpful. Talk to me a little bit about the property insurance elements here. Property and casualty insurance claims are usually going to be part of the overall claims process. Generally, those policies will be at replacement cost, which is what is spent to replace the damaged or destroyed asset, or the other flip side of that is cash value, which is the value of the property right before uh, the property loss. So choosing the type of policy requires a business to measure the cost of the premiums relative to their risk tolerance, uh, just doing a cost-benefit analysis on what, uh, what they want to pay in premiums versus what they think they're going to lose. So replacement value policies are very valuable for asset-heavy businesses like manufacturing since inflation and technology advances very likely will mean uh, the cost of building an asset today is going to be uh, much more than it was when it was constructed. Could be 
50 or 100 years ago in some cases I've seen. So the costs incurred to repair PP&E or other property that has been damaged or destroyed uh, will be reimbursed by that policy rather than the whatever its carrying value might be, which will probably be nothing in, in many cases. Yeah. Um, so just like we spoke about before, precise record keeping is crucial, and this will affect uh, the capital expenditure process. Uh, from a gap perspective, if machinery, equipment, or other assets are rebuilt like new, those will be new assets to capitalize on the balance sheet. If we're just repairing the equipment to get back to the original working condition, those will be expensed as incurred, but still should be recoverable uh, from the insurance policy from a business interruption perspective. Okay. Now, I'm sure companies have to also worry about inventory losses, correct? Oh, absolutely. And this can be an area that straddles both property and business interruption coverage. Uh, lost or destroyed inventory will likely be covered by property insurance since it's, tang since it's tangible. Uh, but that lost inventory and the cost to replace it will affect the company's margins. And those loss or incremental margins that are lost will be part of the business interruption claims. Okay. Talk to me a little bit, Lou, about the insurance proceeds and the recoveries that an organization or firm might receive from an uh, insurance policy. How do we account for that money? Sure. The accounting for insurance claims will vary based on a variety of factors, including the nature of the claim and the coverage, the amounts of proceeds or anticipated proceeds, the timing of the loss in insurance recovery, and the ability of the insurer to actually satisfy the claim. Um, for property and casualty claims involving fixed assets, they should be analyzed using a loss recovery model. So if recovery under the insurance contract is probable, the company should recognize a receivable for the amount expected to be recovered not to exceed the related loss uh, from the impairment of the asset uh, recognized in the financial statements. So any amounts in excess of a recorded loss that are expected to be covered by insurance should be accounted for as a gain contingency. But the gain can, uh, should not be recognized until it's realizable or, or realized. Okay. So when should a company actually record the receivable for the insurance proceeds once they file the claim? Zach, that's a very simple, it depends. Uh, this is a good old-fashioned contingency situation, so that's ASC 450, or as old guys like me know it, FAS 5. Uh, that's what applies here. So generally, the only time a company would record a receivable for insurance proceeds is if it's certain that the proceeds will be received. Uh, when you're thinking about assessing whether receivable actually should be recognized on the books and at what amount, uh, the common factors to think through include the terms of the agreement with the insurance carrier, uh, whether there uh, is a prior claims history with the insurance carrier, whether the claim is being uh, disputed by the claims carrier or by another party, as the case may be, and the amount of loss that has already been recognized on the financial statements. Okay. On a similar note, assume the claim or a portion falls under the gain contingency model. How does a company determine whether the gain has been realized or realizable? So under the gain contingency guidance, a gain is usually only recorded and considered realized or realizable when the company has received the proceeds or confirmation of the amount of proceeds from the insurer. Uh, in the case of a confirmation of amount to be realized, it should indicate the receipt of the insurance claim, the insurance coverage, that's, that is the property that's covered and the amount of the coverage, and the likelihood of the estimated recovery changing is remote. Okay. Uh, in most cases, documentation from a claim adjuster that includes a specific dollar amount would generally not be considered sufficient evidence to recognize a gain on a insurance recovery. Okay, super helpful. So what happens then if there is a dispute over a claim with the insurer? 
a receivable for a probable insurance recovery cannot be recorded if coverage is in dispute or if the policy is unclear as to how to calculate the reimbursable amount. Okay. In these cases, it could cause a loss to be recognized in one period when the asset is impaired or the loss is recognized, while the associated recovery may be recognized in a later period. Okay, let's flip back now to what we talked about earlier, business interruption insurance. Is it viewed the same way? Well, it really depends on the nature of the claim. Uh, when a business is interrupted, the unavoidable costs that continue to be incurred in the absence of revenues, salaries paid to idle workers, rents for property equipment, fixed costs like that, would be considered losses in applying the loss recovery model. An insurance recovery for a loss that should be recorded when the realization of the claim for, for recovery is probable. Okay. On the other hand, uh, the recovery of lost profits or revenue would not be evaluated under the loss recovery model, but instead is evaluated under the gain contingency guidance and not recognized until realized or realizable. Okay. So similar to what we said about gains with property insurance claims, uh, business interruption recovery gain would not be recognized prior to the insurance carrier acknowledging that the claim is covered. Any stipulation from the carrier, like pending final review, uh, should be reviewed pretty closely to determine whether it's an indication that the claim may not actually be realizable. Got it. So let's let's flip gears a little bit and talk about presentation on the financial statement. So if a company receives an insurance recovery uh, on a claim, how do they present this information on the financials? So in general, on the income statement, the classification of insurance proceeds depends on the nature of the insurance claim. Income statement classification guidance isn't provided for many types of insurance claims, so there's a lot of judgment uh, required for that. Uh, for example, if the insurance recoveries relate to property damage, the proceeds should not be recorded as a reduction of the cost to rebuild or replace the insured asset. Uh, business interruption insurance recoveries, even if based in part on lost revenues, would gener generally not be classified as revenues since it's unlikely that receiving business interruption insurance recoveries is part of an entity's ongoing major or central operations. Okay, so talked a little bit about the income statement. Tell me a little bit about the cash flow, actually receiving those dollars in. Sure. How is that presented? Sure. Insurance proceeds should be classified within the statement of cash flows uh, based on the nature of the insured item rather than how the company plans to utilize the proceeds. For example, if the insurance proceeds relate to an investing activity, like da damaged fixed assets, uh, then the insurance proceeds for that damaged asset should be reflected as an investing cash inflow. However, if the insurance proceeds relate to an operating activity, such as inventory losses or business interruption, the insurance proceeds should be reflecting as an operating cash flow. Okay, that makes sense. Adam, coming back over to you, the other big common consideration that we hear at the start of the discussion uh, is going concern. So what should we know here? What additional information um, or potential nuances do we need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think the, you know, the one thing to remind people about is that the assessment of going concern happens regardless of a natural disaster. So it's still required that you have to assess the reporting entity's ability to continue as a going concern at each reporting period. So, you know, at a minimum on an annual basis, you know, for public companies that file quarterly financials, you know, on an interim basis as well. I think the thing to keep in mind here is that when an entity is impacted by a disaster and they're incurring potential significant losses or there's impacts to their liquidity, I think the assessment of that entity's ability to continue as a going concern is obviously 
more challenging. So a lot of issues do tend to come up when management is having to go through that assessment. So just maybe to recap exactly what the assessment is at a very high level, you know, it's it's essentially looking at all of the events or conditions that are considered in the aggregate over a specific look forward period. So it's one year from the date the financial statements are issued or available to be issued that could impact the you know the entity's ability to continue as a going concern and you'll often hear people refer to that there's substantial doubt raised about that ability and that's essentially what we're assessing one thing that is you know important in the assessment is that it's really kind of a two-step assessment so the first step is just figuring out hey looking at all these events and conditions that i have over the next year you know do i essentially have the ability to meet all of my obligations and the important factor here is that you don't actually consider any like mitigating factors so a lot of times you know management's obviously working to put plans into place to help dampen some of those you know concerns that might be raised in those events or conditions but Step one of that assessment, you actually ignore that stuff. It's really just looking more holistic at, is there enough on the table here that could raise doubt? If there is, then you go to step two, which is then looking at all those plans that management is gonna put into place and whether those plans are probable of actually being implemented and whether they'll actually address the substantial doubt that was raised. If it's not, then the entity is considered, is no longer considered a going concern and substantial doubt would be raised and there would be additional disclosure explicitly stating there's substantial doubt about that need to continue as a going concern. Um, and then I would just add one more thing just even if you just get past that step one, there still is a requirement to include some disclosure about what potentially caused that initial doubt. And then you would normally just have a little description of all those different plans that management is putting in place to help mitigate that risk. So speaking of liquidity concerns, how could a company's debt be impacted? Yeah, um, so liquidity can be a significant issue when you just think about a lot of the things we've talked about here today. So, you know, disruption to the business can obviously cause cash flow concerns, whether you're having to expend a lot of cash or, you know, your ability to generate revenues is impacted because assets are destroyed or suppliers are unable to provide you things or your customers are affected. So a lot of reasons that could cause liquidity concerns. And the way those tend to lean into impacting debt is is typically around the ability, well, one, to repay the debt, you know, if you've got scheduled debt payments, but also around certain debt covenants. So most debt agreements have, you know, specific covenants that have to be met generally on a quarterly basis. And so there can be impacts to being in compliance with your debt covenants. Um, and also a couple other things to think about is, you know, a lot of debt is also you know, secured. And a lot of times they're secured by the assets of the company. So if your assets are destroyed, <laughs> there can be implications on the collateralization of that debt and whether or not that could potentially trigger something in the debt agreement that would make the debt come current and the entity would have to pay it, um, which obviously would, you know, further impact liquidity concerns here. Yeah. So, you know, you would hope that many lenders are going to be willing to work with companies or organizations that uh, have been impacted by such events mm -hmm. and potentially offering some sort of waiver uh, around their debt. How does that work in this case? What do we see here? Yeah. And, and the concept of like obtaining a waiver from your lender is, you know, that that happens even absent disaster. So sometimes companies get into certain situations and they work with their lenders or you know, pay certain penalties to get the waiver or whatever. But that that's generally where most companies will will start is trying to get a 
a waiver of any covenant violations. There are a few things you want to keep in mind, either when you're negotiating the waiver potentially, or just when you've received your waiver and you're kind of thinking about how does this impact my debt, particularly the classification of the debt, because that's probably the most significant thing that matters, especially when we're thinking about going concern, because if your debt becomes current, Mm -hmm. most companies don't have the cash to pay their debt if they weren't expecting it to become current. So um, the waivers are intended in most cases to try to prevent debt from becoming current. So they try to cure any covenant violations. But you got to be thinking through that the going concern look forward period is one year from the date the financial statements are issued. So you almost have to think about all of those covenant checkpoints that you're going to have over the next year from that date forward. And does your waiver actually, you know, maybe give you a pass on all those or is it only for a specific period? And then you're still having to look could I still meet these future covenants? And obviously there's a lot of judgment and considerations that need to go into that evaluation. But just because you get a waiver of the current violation doesn't always necessarily give you the freedom to say, well, my debt is okay, it can still be non-current if there's a potential future violation that isn't captured by that waiver. Well, and so obviously the auditors are gonna have a substantial responsibility in assessing going forward concerns. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so obviously, you know, management has to do their assessment. That's a requirement, but also just an audit responsibility is the auditors um, kind of their own independent assessment of that going concern analysis. And so they'll, they'll definitely look at management's assessment and particularly when there's um, management plans that are put into place to help mitigate it. There's a lot of audit procedures that are typically done there. It's a pretty high bar to, to get, you know, plans that are probable um, to mitigate that risk. Um, you know, obviously if you get covenant waiver violations, they'll look at those to make sure are they covering enough of the periods to get us kind of outside of a risk of having debt that still could fail in the future and have to be a current liability. And after going through all that assessment, like, you know, if management and the auditors are aligned with like, there is substantial doubt here, you know, not only will, I, will there be disclosures in the financial statements, but the auditor will actually include a, a specific paragraph in their audit opinion that'll that'll specify and point to the users of the financial statements that substantial doubt does exist about this entity's continue ability to continue as a going concern and make reference to that. Interesting. Lou, coming back over to you, a few less common areas that could also be impacted include exit and disposal activities, potentially derivatives and AROs. So let's walk through a few of those briefly, starting with exit and disposal activities. I'm assuming uh, that if a business or a component of a business is destroyed by a natural disaster, it would fall under this. Is that correct? Exactly. Uh, I think we can agree that the immediate hope for everyone is that the disaster doesn't include any significant loss of life or significant injury. Um, But even if the company is fortunate on the personal side, Uh, It may not escape total loss from the business side. So a company may decide to sell or even abandon certain assets. Exit and disposal activities are described in ASC 420. There are a number of types of costs that can be involved in exit activities, like contract terminations, facilities closures, but also restructuring plans. But so tell me exactly, though, how do these exit activities work from an accounting standpoint? Well, all of these activities represent liabilities or obligations that will need to be paid at some point. And for the most part, as with most liabilities, exit activity liabilities should be recorded as incurred. So even if a company enters into a plan to close a line of business or a location as a result 
of a natural or any type of disaster, the plan itself does not necessarily necessitate uh, recognition of a liability. So for example, if it is decided to permanently shutter a facility and maybe even relocate the employees, uh, those amounts paid to moving companies or facilities management will be recorded when those services are incurred or provided. If the company has to terminate a contract as the result of, of the event, uh, any costs incurred to terminate that contract would similarly be uh, recorded when the contract termination is actually executed. So it's fairly straightforward. Okay, but it is GAAP, so there are exceptions, correct? For sure. A bit more complicated scenario is a contract that will continue to incur costs with no actual economic benefit. Uh, maybe a non-cancelable purchase agreement, notwithstanding any force majeure pr provisions. Um, but if the company has a contractual minimum to pay but isn't getting anything in return, not actually receiving anything, the company has to record a liability for the remaining cost to be paid as of what we call the cease use date. Uh, the company would have to calculate the fair value of the remaining cash flows under that contract using uh, a credit-adjusted risk-free rate. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about restructuring plans and what do companies need to be thinking about for those? Well, restructuring plans will generally follow the rules we just outlined, uh, expense as incurred. The exception to that is for one-time employee termination benefits, so severance plans basically. If because of the disaster, the business, or part of the business shutters, uh, many people could lose their jobs. Hopefully, the company would be in a position to compensate those employees who, who are losing their jobs. Uh, One-time employee termination benefit plan arrangements go into effect for accounting purposes when it meets certain criteria and has been communicated to the employees. So the employees have to know that this is what the plan is. The criteria include management's commitment to the plan, identification of the employees affected and the expected completion dates for the things they need to do and when the plan will end, terms of the benefits that will be received, and actions indicating that it is unlikely that the plan will be significantly altered. So once the plan is made and communicated, it's not going to change. Uh, when all those criteria are met, the liability for all those costs is recorded and then are relieved as those benefits are paid out. Uh, keep in mind, those benefits may very well include continuation of employee health benefits, not just salaries. So those need to be recorded as well. And that can be challenging if the company is self-insured for its uh, employee medical plans. Uh, those estimates for the amounts paid under the self-insurance plan need to be made as, as, you know, as they're paid, but they need to be adjusted each period as, as estimates change. Okay, so lots of great information there to keep in mind. You mentioned briefly asset retirement and environmental obligations. Talk to me a little bit more there and how are those in uh, estimates impacted? We mentioned at the top that those tangible long-lived assets need to be looked at for impairment when a disaster occurs. But many large-scale operations, whether they are manufacturing plants, materials processing, things like that, may have legal obligations associated with retiring or disposing those assets. Uh, very often those obligations are related to environmental regulations, and those matters are discussed in ASC 410. Uh, let's start with retirement obligations that existed before the disaster event. Uh, ASC 410 follows similar guidance to the contingency guidance in ASC 450. When a liability for future costs to retiring assets are probable and the fair value of those costs can be reasonably estimated, a liability for those costs should be recorded, and it's recorded at the present value, and then it's going to be accreted over the life of that asset. So, Lou, are you telling me that a disaster could actually trigger uh, that a liability needs to be satisfied? 
Yeah, uh, but it could also cause a change in the actual cost that will be incurred if additional damage uh, requires additional work for the teardown. So the liability would increase in that case. Okay, so and going back now to environmental issues, sounds like this could even be more costly. Yeah, ASC 410 also talks about environmental liabilities. That specific guidance is similar to other asset retirement obligations in terms of accounting treatment, but is specifically related to the remediation of pollution from some past act. But I think the more relevant environmental issues that come from a disaster relate to cleanup costs. If a storm or an earthquake or a mechanical issue uh, compromise dangerous materials that may be maintained at a facility, uh, think of a gas line leak or an oil spill, there could be significant, significant costs as a result. And to go along with that, there are public relations problems like the BP oil spill a few years back or going even further back, uh, the Exxon Valdez crash in Alaska. Uh, but the cost just to contain and fix those issues can be in the millions or sometimes even billions of dollars. Right. So similar to retirement obligations, those costs should be estimated and recorded. There could be uh, also, to go along with, with those accidents, significant litigation, which should be reviewed under the contingency rules, uh, that at a minimum, you're, you may need to at least disclose those contingencies, and if not recorded until more certainty exists. Okay. Adam, let's wrap up a few things by talking about some final reporting considerations. I assume that an extreme event like a natural disaster will create the need for some level of disclosure or additional discussions within the financials. Can you talk me through some of that and what that would look like? Yeah. So we've talked a lot already through our discussion today, just different areas where there would be impacts to the accounting. And so obviously an additional um, consideration is gonna be disclosure over the accounting for those items. So like impairments, for example, you know, there's there's specific guidance around disclosing impairment charges that are taken under those related areas for fixed assets, intangibles, goodwill, et cetera. But some of the other areas that do also tend to come into play around disclosures is, is kind of what Lou is alluding to a bit around the loss contingency rules. So there are disclosures for certain loss contingencies and the and kind of the the nature of this, the disclosure really depends whether or not those loss contingencies are recognized or not recognized. So a lot of times, you know, the, the, there is an expectation that there will be a loss, but there is not enough information to determine what that amount may be. And so um, an estimate is is performed, and so instead of recording it, there'll be just more disclosure explaining what's the nature of the circumstance of the disaster in this case, but also either stating an estimated amount, a range of amounts, or it may even just be like, you know, we don't have enough information at this time to really put our hands around what this number would be, but you kind of state that it's unknown, but at least give indication that there is potential loss coming. Um, in some cases, you may know what that loss is going to be, so you actually have recorded it. So a lot of times there'll still be disclosure of what that loss amount is recorded if it's not explicit on like the face of the financial statements, just so it's not too misleading for users. And then the other thing you have to keep about is if you recorded a loss based on an estimated amount, but there's a potential that that amount could change, then you would also need to have disclosure about excess loss and a range of that excess loss or an estimate of that excess loss. Or again, if you don't know exactly what the additional loss might be, you still need to state that so it's clear to users that there's future losses associated with this event. In addition to the loss contingencies, another area to, which is just a general requirement under normal circumstances is this kind of 
um, focus on risks and uncertainties under ASC 275. And so in most normal states, I would say like the disclosure in this area, are, they're very like canned and boilerplate. Everyone states kind of the same generic stuff, but events like a natural disaster can call into question like the need to really expand on those disclosures. And, and what I mean by that is like those disclosures tend to focus on not just, you know, explaining typical risks and uncertainties in the business, but you're also talking about significant estimates that could be impacted, or if you've got certain concentrations in your business, so areas where you might be vulnerable. So it could be customer concentrations, it could be geographical locations where a majority of your business takes place. Clearly, a disaster could cause those concentration vulnerabilities to be more significant. So if you think about a key supplier that provides all your inventory, their supply factories are destroyed in a storm, like, you know, your concentration in that one supplier is now going to probably be significant because it's now a near-term vulnerability that you need to explain to your users. Whereas in a normal condition, it may not even, you may have that concentration, but it may not really rise to a significant risk of like vulnerability in that in that. Um, one supplier. So those are just some things you got to think through. There's a lot that you want to just make sure that you're explaining to the users just where all those impacts are, where you can, you know, distinguish the amounts of those impacts, you're clear on that, and where you can't, you at least just state that there are additional losses or charges coming. So great point there, Adam. So it, it looks like we've taken very much a perspective from U.S. GAAP and what's going to be required there. What about some of the public companies with SEC reporting requirements? There must be even more scrutiny around some of the disclosures and the filing requirements that those companies must present. Yeah, so obviously for public companies, in addition to the disclosures that are required within their financial statements, obviously their filings also include additional elements. So management's MD&A is going to be a key aspect that's going to be impacted by any material natural disaster. So, you know, when you think about public companies that file their 10Qs, their 10Ks, or maybe it's a registration statement for an initial filer that's been impacted by an event like this, they're going to have significant discussion in there about those events. Um, You know, things they'll talk about are very similar to stuff you might see in in the financial statements, but obviously much more expanded in, in the nature of the discussion itself. So they'll talk about their impairments, you know, the losses they've incurred to the extent that there's insurance recoveries and claims and things like that going on, just explaining some of the the semantics there and where where there are potential recoveries and what's covered, what's not covered, locations of vulnerability and risk will have to be discussed as well. Things around like liquidity we talked about, you know, if there's liquidity issues, that's generally a component of that as well. So discussions around liquidity. And then even just like a big component of management's MDNA is really like, what are the trends in the business? How are trends impacted? So discussion around that and even then looking forward. So like, what is the outlook for this company? Um, you know, how quick is a recovery going to be to the operations or to the business itself? Or is it a long road ahead? You know, so that those types of elements will be included. Okay. And what about an 8K filing? Is that going to be required? Yeah, it'll depend. Um, in a lot of cases, yes, especially when there's like material charges. So, you know, an 8K is generally going to be filed when there's some type of material current event. And there's a whole list of events that qualify for an 8K filing, but one of them is a material impairment. So if you have a material impairment at the onset or you know you're going to have one, then it's probably prudent that you're going to have to file an 8K, which is 
basically just a kind of keeping current filing and letting um, investors and, and users of the financial statements know about this event. Uh, the thing about 8K filings is they have a very small window to get those actually filed. So it's four days um, after the event, they have to be filed with the SEC. So it's something that, you know, if you know you've got these things, you got to kind of act with some urgency, obviously getting your your finance, legal teams and uh, investor relations all all synced up there to get that, that filing submitted on time. Well, gentlemen, this has been very helpful, extremely insightful. Lou, thank you so much for your time and sharing your perspective on some of the key considerations we need to be thinking about uh, for these natural disasters and ultimately how to weather the storm from an accounting and finance perspective. Adam, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you very much. I was glad to be a part of it. Same. (laughs) Great. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.